0: This talk was recorded at Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles and is freely offered for your enjoyment. For more information, please visit againstthestream.org. So we have two tales of woe today uh, and adding Buddhist perspective uh, to them. And uh, uh, the first tale of woe will probably be uh, familiar to a lot of you. Uh, but it's about losing a pet, and and what to do uh, at the end. So Mitch, the dog I uh, took care of, finally passed away. But he passed away because we took him to the vet. And so, as a Buddhist, that's can be a difficult uh, decision to make. You know, do you kill your dog? Or do you let the dog die? Uh, so Mitch had a long life. He, he, uh, I guess it was a good life, as far as the dog is concerned. <clears throat> One day he showed up at our center, and, uh, and he never left. And he was young, and we had a, uh, an elder dog named Vance, and he was the alpha dog. So Mitch became his sidekick. And so Mitch learned how to protect our center from Vance. And so anybody who was in the alley, Vance would go barking, and then Mitch would go barking. And, uh, and it worked out really well. So we had a lot of barking dogs, uh, you know, protecting us from the people in the alley. And, um, and he had his own little place outside, and he would lay down, and, and Mitch had his place, and Vance had his place, and they were never really together because of the alpha male. The, the leader always had to stay apart from who he was leading. Uh, so he could continue to be the leader and and then one day Vance got really old and then Vance died and then so Mitch took over and so Mitch was the alpha male and then we had another dog named Sukarma who showed up and uh, Sukarma became sort of Mitch's sidekick and and so they would both bark at people in the alley and and every morning they would sort of wait for the cars to pull out you have a fence and As soon as the fence opened up they would run out and they'd go around the neighborhood and they'd come back about 20 minutes later and i don't know what they did out there Uh, maybe they were just checking it out so then sukarma bit somebody and we had we sukarma was then adopted by a a couple that lives in in sunland and uh, about a year ago sukarma died don't know if it was from illness or old age or what their problem was but geez, all these animals dying all the time, you know? So now Mitch is getting really old, and if you've probably heard the story that I was helping Mitch up and down the stairs. So it was five, six, seven times a day. So I, I would hold Mitch 10, 14 times a day. Rather large dog, and uh, it was nice to hold him. And, uh, and he had never been held in all his years at the center. So now that he's um, aging and becoming elder, He's getting uh, held a lot. So the the interesting transition for me is when he went from old age to death. Within a week, he he started to die, and and it was interesting because up until that point he had just be, was getting older and older and older, and then there was that moment from being old to going into the process of death and he had scoliosis and his his spine was sort of humped in the back and couldn't bend his legs and uh, he was uh, mostly blind and uh, couldn't hear very well so the last three days of his life he couldn't eat and uh, so you, you come to the point where you say okay as a Buddhist, what do you do? Do you uh, let him die of starvation? Um, do you um, end that suffering? Is there, is, it, is there ever a good time to kill your dog? You know, the, the, they like to use the term putting him to sleep, and it, it really sounds much better. But, um, but when do you kill your dog, you know? And, and then do you do it yourself or do you have other people do it and you bring their karma into play with your karma? So the Buddha said it's always wrong to kill. Always. There's never a good time to kill anything. Um, but, but then again, sometimes it's necessary for us to kill. Like when we eat. Uh, thankfully we don't have to, to kill what we eat. Um, um, in and out, Burger can do it for us. You know? <laughs> um, and so, so we're complicit in that but it's, it's not killed specifically for us so our karma doesn't get hurt too much uh, but if you're going to kill your dog you, your intention is to take his life but your intention is to take his life because it's the right thing to do because he'll suffer less and then you say to yourself well, does a dog really suffer in the way a human suffers does a dog really say to itself when it gets up in the morning gosh it could be a better day if I wasn't sick or I wasn't old you know and and they're hoping they have hope that tomorrow will be a better day well I don't think dogs have hope and I think humans uh, use hope maybe as a crutch but I don't think there really is any hope for any of us. They're hoping that tomorrow will be a better day without us investing ourselves in making it a better day I, I, I don't know. So I weighed everything, and I said, well, you know, he's, he's not eating. He can't lay down at night to go to sleep. He's been standing up, leaning against a table for hours and hours. So we decided to do that. Now, I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't uh, go myself. But uh, the abbess of the center and, uh, and our residential manager were able to do that. And and in a way, I was sort of sad that I couldn't be there, but in another way, uh, uh, Mitch wanted, may have wanted to live more if I had been there. So now you come to this place of um, 10 years of taking care of a pet, and how do you get rid of that? What do you do? So that was my challenge. And... I decided that the, probably the best thing to do would be to kill the person that owned the pet, which was me. And, and I thought to myself, okay, so now not only did I have to kill the dog, now I've got to kill myself, sort of euphemistically, if you will. And, and, and how do you go about killing yourself? How do you go about killing the person that owned that dog for ten years? and and what I found was grief grief is the process that allows you to die with the dog and then in its place is this person who didn't have the dog in this place is the person who um, has recollections of a dog that was once there but not the same person and so how long does it take you to kill yourself? Well, sometimes three or four days, sometimes even longer, sometimes a week, sometimes a month. And I imagine when we lose our parents or lose our friends and, and, and lose our relatives, and it might even take longer to, to kill the person in grief so that this other person can continue. Now, to put it into a, a little uh, better or easier a more digestible model, um, I just bought a, a couple months ago, I bought a tenor guitar, a really cool tenor guitar, a tenor guitar only has four strings, so I've never played a four string guitar before and it's a whole different way to play it, so now I had to kill the person who didn't play the guitar, and in this place I had to put somebody who did play the guitar, so how was I going to kill the person who didn't play the guitar? I killed him with practice, <laughs> so every day I would practice and the person who didn't know slowly died and went away, and now there's a person who almost knows how to play, the <laughs> and with enough oh. practice, he'll be dead too, and then there'll be a person who knows how to play, and, and I had never really thought about dying in that way, but I'd always found learning stuff was very difficult. It wasn't easy for me in school. That, that The idea of, of learning things meant that I had to die into what I was trying to understand and learn. And, and the process was never fun. I was always amazed at people who enjoyed learning. For me, it was painful, and it took a long time. And um, So I would encourage all of you to practice dying uh, as often as you can. And if you meditate, that is a wonderful way to die into the present moment experience of our life. That all the people that used to live yesterday are sort of gone and those people who are living today have taken their place and there'll be a whole new batch tomorrow and we just keep getting reborn moment after moment, day after day, year after year and we keep evolving, if you will, into something that never stops. The Buddha said we're in a constant state of becoming something. But that's something we never attain. We never become anything. We just keep dying and getting reborn, day after day, month after month. And maybe it takes something like losing a pet or trying to learn how to play a guitar to see the process, to to actually get into the process of what it means to learn something new, what it means to be a new person, what it means to get rid of some of your prejudice and uh, and uh, limited perspective. I have two friends now that uh, are in their one is late 50s, one is early 60s, and for some reason they've come politically active. I don't know if that's such a good thing after 60 to be politically active. Uh, I think we should die peacefully. You know, and politics will never let us die peacefully and they're sending out emails and they're ranting and raving against this and against that and, and I'm going, you know, I wish I could just talk to them and say, hey, listen, let the 20-year-olds get politically involved. You're old now and you want to die in a peaceful way and, and it's good to have nice thoughts in your head and do something that you like to do and maybe benefit others. Uh, but I haven't said that. And so they continue to do their political stuff and I continue to do my spiritual stuff, which seems to give me a, a bit more peace. I was really lucky this week to give four presentations in three days. And two weeks ago I had this terrible cold. I couldn't do anything. And uh, and why is it when you're sick and want to be alone, people call you and say, Let's go out to lunch? You know. People we haven't seen in five years. We want to take you for food. No thank you. Call me next week. I'll put And and so the first talk I gave was to uh, gang intervention leaders. And this was sponsored by UCLA and a Christian group. And these are men and women who are getting certified to be gang intervention leaders. And I guess they're being supported by the county, or the city, or the state. I'm not quite sure. But they have to do uh, presentations, and they have to listen to presentations. So I was talking about spirituality. And I got a really interesting question from them. The question was: this guy comes up and says, Why do you keep calling him the Buddha? You've said the Buddha three times. <clears throat> Isn't he just Buddha? And and nobody's ever asked me that question before. I, I saw I was sort of stuck for a moment. And I said, Well, there were 27 Buddhas before the Buddha. So I was just making sure you knew what Buddha I was talking about. <laughs> and it worked out fine <laughs> and, and then I gave a talk to some chaplains at the UCI Medical Center in Santa Monica and, uh, and it's always fun to speak to chaplains because most of them took you know, comparative religions for about two weeks and, and then they really know a lot about their own religion uh, but others and, and so uh, there was a uh, rabbi uh, uh, or soon to be rabbi who's doing his chaplaincy work. And, and he just listened so intently to what I had to say, and he, and he just didn't seem to feel comfortable with what I had to say. And so I, I thanked everybody for listening after my hour-long presentation, and, and I went into the hallway to get the uh, elevator, and he followed me. And he said, I've got to ask you a question. And I said, okay. He says, is there any joy in Buddhism? Is there any joy you know, and I thought to myself, and I said, well, not much. <laughs> and, and he seemed a little concerned about that. And, and I thought to myself, well, the beginning of Buddhism, this guy was a prince. He left everything he had to go to the forests and jungles of India. Was he seeking joy and happiness? You know, I... I don't think so. I think he was seeking the answer to suffering and why it's so hard to be a human being. And and did he ultimately find joy in the practice of Buddhism? Well, if you practice at all, you, you know that it gets really difficult and requires you to be present and, and, and the body may not be comfortable and the mind may not be comfortable and we have a past and we have a future and we're sort of dealing with issues and. And and sometimes joy rises for a while, you know, uh, and, but most of the time it doesn't seem to for me. And 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 in reading about Buddhist meditation, especially uh, tranquility meditation, joy seems to be one of the things that agitates our mind. And I thought that was a fascinating way of looking at joy, that if the ultimate goal in Buddhism is to actually find peace, real peace, deep down peace, in every situation you find yourself in. And, and you find pleasure agitates the mind, and you find pain agitates the mind, and you find happiness agitates the mind, and you find sadness agitates the mind, prevents the mind from being still, like a, a pond in a, in a forest, That that to get past all that stuff, because where there's joy, there's also the opposite of joy. Can, are we, you know, yeah. capable of finding peace? Is, is it available to us? And and do we have a lot of people coming along with us? He said, it doesn't sound like you're, you're family-based. It doesn't sound like you're communities. It sounds like, you know, uh, um, the Christians have the, the shepherd and the flock, and... There's an emphasis on marriage and children and families and and there's a bunch of single Buddhists, you know, who, who have who seem ultimately okay with being single and and fine with it. And and you go, wow. And so I said, well, you know, sometimes as we're speaking up, the elevator took a long time to get there. <laughs> I said Sometimes it seems like we're all sort of sitting alone together in our meditation practice. And we're all sort of gathering alone together to hear a Dharma talk. And, and there may be community, but there's also a sense of individuality. There's also a sense of, of, of separateness as well as unity that I, I find really appealing in Buddhist practice, that, that we don't have to belong to any particular group to be a good Buddhist all we have to do is have our own practice and in our own practice uh, allows us to see the truth to gain insight into the way the world works and to find ultimate peace in all the uh, problems of our life in all the disappointments we find in our life like animals and things like that so reflecting on all of that I sent out a newsletter and I want to talk about a really important thing that happened uh, just a few weeks ago, it seems, and that's Japan. You know, and why? Why, you know? Uh, it's just an amazing event, and if you've seen the video, which I'm fairly sure you have, it's like, you know, a movie to see that tsunami wave coming over. They, they couldn't have done it any better than CGI. It was just unbelievable. And the thing I didn't know about it, Japan was it's an elderly population. A lot of these people who are homeless now and displaced are, are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and they've lost everything. And, and, and how do you come to a place of acceptance with that? You've worked your whole life acquiring stuff and maybe building a house and living in a house 20, 30, 40 years and pictures on the wall and all the things you remember. And then one day it's all gone. And, and what, what does that mean to you now? Where do you live now? And, and the most amazing thing to me is there wasn't any looting. You know? I'm thinking L.A. <laughs> it, you know, every man and woman for themselves. You know, And you just go, wow. So, I'm reading the Huffington Post. One of my favorite things, but you know what bums me out about the Huffington Post? They sold out to AOL. And I'm thinking, AOL, come on and now AT&T wants to buy T-Mobile you know that's why I have my, my cell phone T-Mobile it's fine why does life have to change <laughs> so this is a quote from Huffington Post on Monday Tokyo's governor was quoted as saying I think the disaster in Japan is Timbatsu. Timbatsu is a Japanese Term that means divine punishment. Can you imagine, you know, saying that 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 it was divinely inspired, this catastrophe, and and if you remember the the problem with uh, Thailand and the tsunami with Thailand, went, and I guess Malaysia too, that a lot of people died, and people were saying, you know, it's sin and it's karma and it's all you know, somebody doesn't like us, it's all our fault, and, and maybe that's. What happens? But Buddhism has a much better approach to why stuff happens. And I want to share that with you. you may have heard it before, but I'd like to share it again so, so you can view the world in, in a little more skillful way, and realize it's, it's not about you that the earthquake happened, or the end of the world will happen. I mean, 2012 is just around the corner. <laughs> it's, it's not about us. It's about five things. And the cool thing about it being about five things is it's really hard to blame five things. You know, it's easy to blame one thing. If it's God, you can blame God. If it's karma, you can blame karma. If it's Buddha, you can blame Buddha. But blaming five things, and you don't know exactly how much investment each of those five things have in the calamity or the catastrophe. So uh, I'm going to read just a little bit of it and then go into uh, a monologue. It's, uh, the world is filled with so much pain and suffering, and now a tsunami. Why did so many people have to die? Was it their karma? I've never found the cause of anything in Buddhism to be just one thing. Now, this is something I wrote uh, a while ago. I'm not a very good writer, uh, so bear with me. Saying the reason for a complex chain of events is the result of one action, whether it's God, sin, or karma, doesn't seem like a viable option for a Buddhist. Buddhist cosmology is non-theistic and lacks a first cause. I admit some Buddhists feel karma can replace God as the first cause because Buddhism has a moral code and lacks a divine lawgiver. But is it fair to say that a tsunami is the moral consequence of unskillful intention, speech, and action? The Buddha was clear on this. We lack a realistic worldview because of lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Science can add some clarity and meaning, but the Buddha warned us about this world of ours, samsara, as ultimately being unsatisfactory. It's the place where birth and death and change occur. We experience pain because we have a body and mind and suffer because of desire and impermanence. Sickness, injury, aging, and death are simply the signs of flux, and change in an insufferable world. Early Buddhism gives us something called the five Niyamas, or the five aspects of cosmic order. These Niyamas can deepen our understanding and give meaning to why things happen. Niyama is a Pali term, the canonical language of early Buddhism, for cosmic order. The Niyamas show how certain conditions Laws of nature work at different levels of cause and effect. The first niyama is the law of physical matter. It is the physical, inorganic order of existence. Seasonal changes, earthquakes, floods, gravity, and heat are some of the many examples that roughly embraces the laws of physics and chemistry. So we have this first niyama of like one of the platelets moving, I guess eight feet, six feet. Japan isn't where it used to be. And in that movement, this giant wave, because so much water was displaced, it was created. And then it sort of hit Japan. And I'm thinking, well, it doesn't sound like bad karma. It just sounds like they're sort of living in the wrong place. Um, and we're sort of living in the wrong place when the next earthquake happens. but. I'm sure most of us have a sense of well-being about it, and it won't happen on our watch, you know, the big one, you know. And I didn't wake up today feeling that today was the day the earthquake was going to happen. You know, fairly certain most of you didn't wake up today feeling that today was the big one, or that even this was your last day on earth, you know. I've never had that feeling. It would be interesting to wake up one day and go, I'm going to die today. What am I going to do? Call mom not pay my, you know, charge cards. You know. <laughs> what would I want to do, you know? The second niyama is the law of living matter, the physical, organic order, like cells and genes, whose laws are similar to the science of biology. So the first niyama is like the platelets moving and as water was displaced, and then we have this sort of genes and chromosomes. And that may have something to do, because... All those genes and chromosomes were living in Japan. And maybe they were living in Japan because their ancestors lived in Japan. And so generation after generation were born in Japan and they were there because of previous generations and some were there because they were students and some were there because they traveled there. But genes and chromosomes may have something to do with why people were in Japan at the exact moment of that tsunami. The third niyama is karma. Karma is the activity of transforming energy through intention, (coughs) speech, and action. The result of this energy transformation is only considered wholesome or skillful if less suffering or no suffering is produced. Karma is the cause, and vipaka, canonical language of Pali, is the result. It is the principle of conditionality, operative uh, operative on the moral plane, this sequence of cause and consequence replaces the divine lawgiver. In Buddhism, there is no moral law. There, pardon me. There is a moral law, but no lawgiver and no one to administer it. This niyama pertains to the world of ethical responsibility. So, can we say that karma was involved in the tsunami? This is really an interesting one. You know uh, maybe you know and, and, and when you say, when I say maybe i 'm thinking about the radiation right now and those nuclear plants, somebody had the intention to build nuclear plants because apparently they don 't have any coal or oil in japan everything 's imported, and one of the uh, scientists that I saw explaining the whole thing said. It was like Robert Johnson at the crossroads sold his soul to the devil for power. So, and, and one of my favorite movies was Crossroads. Ralph Macchio, I don't know if you saw that. What a wonderful movie that was. And, and, and there he was at the crossroads, and the devil comes, you know, and he says, I want to play the guitar. And, and he got really good at playing the guitar. And then he got his soul back to him. How cool was that? So so in building these nuclear reactors, that intention might have been skillful, might have been a good intention. We want to have power for our communities and our populations and we're going to build nuclear reactors. And because we're so smart and scientific about it, we're going to determine and and prepare for a 7.5 earthquake You know, because nothing bigger has ever happened. And so we're going to make sure that that can't turn into a problem. And they built their nuclear reactors. And then they had a nine, and so much for that. So, Karma may have had something to do with it. It might have been a good intention. And how many people have had a good intention, and it turned out to just be a disaster (laughs) afterwards, you know? Um, But all the information we had seemed to indicate we were on the right track. The only problem with all the information we had is it's always in a constant state of flux and change. And it's only good for that one moment. And a week, a month, or a year later, everything is different. So it's difficult to make a good choice. Sometimes we just have to have faith in the choice we make and hope it turns out okay. And it reminds me (laughs) of um, retreatants on a retreat. And they, uh, seven days and they decided to celebrate the end of the retreat by going to a fast food restaurant. <laughs> and there they were and none of them could decide on what to get because everything had a downside to it and they were you know, analytical now and they saw the cause and consequence of everything they said, did and thought. And this had too much sodium and this had da 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 and animals had to die and da da da, da. And, and I'm thinking sometimes we are faced in those situations and what we need to do is simply make a choice and hope for the best. You know, Is it the cheeseburger or the fish sandwich? And, and either one might keep you alive for another day. Maybe not though. Um, and so here we are faced with all these choices, having good intentions. We're going to be save the world. Our political view is the right one. We're going to initiate. Um, a a bill here or a change here because the world will benefit from our insight into how cause and consequence works. And it turns out to be pretty much the same stuff over and over again. So what do we need to do? I suppose we need to practice and practice and practice to have these decisions come from our practice and maybe not from our intellect. In Zen they have something called the heart-mind. And it's a little bit of intuition and it's a little bit of intellect that combine. And that seems to be the best combination. If it's all intellect, we may not have enough compassion to have a good choice. And if it's all compassion, we may not have enough intellect to make a good choice. So there's always a balance. You might give all your money away to save the world, and then you starve. If you're really smart, you won't give any money away. But that doesn't do the world any good either. So a little a little Compassion, wisdom. The fourth one. This is the most difficult of all. The fourth niyama of why stuff happens. It is the spiritual or transcendent. This principle of conditionality operates on a spiritual level. The natural phenomena that occurs with the birth of the Buddha. The reasons for Buddhist practice are in this group. This niyama has to do with the spiritual laws that govern ultimate reality. Ultimate reality. What a cool concept that is. So what is ultimate reality in Buddhism? Simply put, ultimate reality in Buddhism is the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. That When you have that direct experience, when you see how all things are connected and how all things are conditional and how all things are dependent on everything else for their survival or existence, it is said you have, you have had a vision of ultimate reality. And oftentimes that vision is called enlightenment. Enlightenment, I talked about last time, it doesn't necessarily last your whole life. It could last just a few moments. And the results of that enlightenment experience could last a few days or a few weeks. But it's, it's soon forgotten. And hopefully another experience will happen. Uh, enlightenment experience doesn't necessarily lead to morality or ethics. But it does lead to a rather unique view of the world, that there's more to life than news weather and sports. There's more to life than simply the relative reality we're faced with every day. But another aspect of this fourth niyama is the aspect of, um, of how we experience ultimate reality and, and what we're experiencing. Apparently, there are building blocks to ultimate reality. And the building blocks are almost like atoms. In the way we used to think about the world, the little the everything was built from atoms on up, and if you broke it down, you broke it down to an atom. Well apparently in early Buddhist psychology, there is this sort of atom theory as well, that for a moment things exist for a moment, and these this existence is the building block of our experience, of our reality that we experience. And and what I, what threw me off was well, you know, um, the Buddha said everything is in a constant state of flux and change so how could anything exist at all apart from everything else and the early Buddhist monks said well no, they only existed for a moment so I said, well okay, well how long is a moment how many moments in a minute and I found out that there can be a billion moments in a minute because a moment really doesn't last at all it's just sort of there then it's not. How many points in an inch? You can have a billion points in an inch. Or you can have 10 points in an inch. How cool is that? So these building blocks of our experience last momentarily, soon to turn into something else. So this, so this fourth niyama, the reason stuff happens to us is because of these building blocks of our experience. They're there for a moment. They exist things are conditional, they change. I also like to think of the Dharma, this is called the Dharma Niyama, that another definition for Dharma is our religious practice. Dharma is religious practice. And I like to think stuff happens to us, whether good or bad, skillful or unskillful, because of our religious practice that when we sit down to meditate or when we read the Dharma or when we listen to a lecture we're involved in religious practice and because of that our life is better I like to think that religious practice allows us to have a better life and so maybe if we are unskillful in our religious practice or don't have one our life isn't as good as it could be maybe now um, a friend of mine is seventy years old, and he is an atheist. He likes Buddhism, and Buddhism allows you to be an atheist, which is fine, and, uh, but he doesn 't have an afterlife concept, and it doesn 't bother him, which just fascinates me because I like to have some place to go myself <laughs> you know and i don 't know if what the Buddha said is correct or not, uh, but it, it, it seems to bring me a sense of peace to have some place to go when I transition. This life into the next one, it seems to give me something to do in that transition as well. If I want to go someplace, and and uh, so I was just really surprised when he was so out front with this idea of not having any place to go, and he seems so at ease with it that it you know he feels it's just a bunch of fairy tales and it really doesn't matter. He comes from a scientific background; he's an engineer, and he sort of knows how it works. And and I thought to myself, isn't that a shame, that the the intellect and the mind allow us to know how it all works? (laughs) And and that intuition aspect of us allows us, us to be in the magic of how it all works, and we're never quite sure how it works. And when you get to that place where you don't know how it works and yet it still works, that's a joyful place if we have joy. That's a joyful place. You know, I like the idea of being surprised when stuff works and being surprised when stuff doesn't work. And, and, and so I think there's a lot that we don't know and I think that perhaps comes with insight, the insight of not knowing. And the wisest people I've talked to don't know anything or at least admit to knowing anything. And some of the uh, least wise know a lot. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm right in between now. I know some stuff and I don't know a lot of stuff and I'm happy with not knowing and maybe I don't need to know. But I think there is an afterlife, and and I think the afterlife is important to me. And I think Mitch had an afterlife, too. And I think Mitch right now is being reborn as a human because of all his contact with the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And and maybe one day he'll be knocking at our door looking for a room, and we'll invite him in, he'll come back. What do you think, Michelle? The fifth niyama is mind. This niyama implies mental activities such as consciousness, perception, conception, etc. Mental phenomena arises because of conditions. The mind is not an independent agent. This is the science of psychology. So, if we look at the tsunami, we look at the earthquake, we look at these five niyamas, we can see how some of them, I think, uh, were conditions necessary for it to happen. I, I think the mind had something to do with it. Again, I think uh, I think genes and chromosomes had something to do with it. The geology of uh, Japan certainly has something to do with it. The karma may be skillful, unskillful, maybe. intentions uh, are good, intentions are bad. But I think that was probably the least of the, of the niyamas. And, and then this, this dharma niyama, um, fascinating for me as it is it's sort of like Buddhist psychology or Buddhist philosophy and, and that may have had something to do with it too so who do you blame? which one of those five do you blame? Uh, do you blame three of the five? do you blame two of the five? did it just happen? you know and, and it would be hard to predict hard to prevent hard to avoid and, and, and what does our practice give us? Well, I think our practice gives us the ability to respond to the tsunami, the ability to respond to the earthquake with clarity and compassion, clarity and kindness. And and in doing that, I think the Dharma manifests in the world in a very special way. So maybe we can't prevent those things, um, uh, but we can respond to them in a way that reduces suffering and 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 right now there are so many people in the world who are suffering it's unbelievable we have so much work to do and and most of us don't have time most of us don't have enough money most of us don't have what's required to go to libya to go to japan to go to all the places that that need kindness and clarity and uh, So maybe if in our own life we are creating less hatred, less anger, less greed, we have less delusion, we have less lust, maybe that is our way of making this world a little better place to live in. And if the opportunity does arise for us to be of service in any way, maybe we'll take that opportunity and not do it because it's the right thing to do, but do it because people will suffer less if Buddhists and the Dharma get involved not because it's the right thing but perhaps because it's the skillful thing to do may those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful and free from suffering may no harm come to us May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May our parents, our partners, our pets, our brothers and sisters, our friends and family, all the people we don't know and all the people we don't like. May they too be happy, peaceful and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. From the highest realm of existence to the lowest, may all beings arisen in any of these realms with form and without, with perception and without, with consciousness and without. May they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them, may no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free. The fear struck, fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief. May the sick find health relief. You have just listened to a podcast from Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society. If you'd like to make a contribution to help support these teachings, please visit againstthestream.org.